This week's Dopey, the podcast about drugs, addiction, and dumb shit, is brought to you by Aloe Recovery, located in sunny California in Malibu and Silver Lake. Aloe cares about its clients. Bob Forrest, our friend, and Evan Haynes, our new friend, uh, got together and said, we want to create a rehab that cares about addicts. So they created a place where their motto was connection and not control. At Aloe, excellence matters. This is what, what Evan told me. We provide high, ultra high quality care, but that's not what makes us special. It's authenticity and genuous that gives us the ability to reach the unreachable, and you cannot fake that. They guarantee their clients will have the highest quality, most unique, and powerful healing experience they could find anywhere. Now, what really appealed to me about it was when Bob and Evan both told me how respecting addicts is what they care about. And I've been to a million programs where I was never respected and I was treated like a, you know, a number or just a bother. And if I ever fuck up, which God willing I won't, you know I'll be on the phone to Bob and Evan to go to Aloe. But um, their doctors are board-certified addictionologists. Their clinical director, Dr. Dina Mannion, has three decades of experience treating addiction and mental health disorders. Their staff has a combined 675 years of experience treating addiction and mental health problems. I would just go for the amenities, though. Surfing, horseback riding, sweat lodges, and sound bath meditations. So if you guys are fucked and you need some help, you should totally go to Aloe. Thanks, Aloe, and here is the show. Hello and welcome to Dopey, the podcast about drugs, addiction, and dumb shit. I am Dave, and I have a very special guest on the phone. His name is Darren Prince. He wrote this amazing book called Aiming High, How a Prominent Sports and Celebrity Agent Hit Bottom at the Top. How are you, Darren? I'm great, man. Thanks for having me. Are you kidding me? This Darren Prince, I mean, did you call yourself a super agent, or is there a, a, a realm of agents that are better than normal agents, and you're one of them? No, I mean, I, I, hate, I hate using that word. It's, a, it's, it's funny. Uh, you know, years ago when I was using an active and I had an ego, um, yeah, I loved it. But, you know, now in sobriety and recovery, I learned to check my ego at the door and keep my ego crushed. But... The word prominent on the cover was funny because the publisher wanted to use the word super agent. And I go, that's just not my, my life anymore. How is super agent hit bottom at the top? I was like, there's just no way because I'm nobody's super. It's the talent and the icons I represent that are the super ones. Well, they are super. But what about like yeah. supermodels versus super agents? Like a, like a Cindy Crawford or a Heidi Klum. They wouldn't say a prominent model. They would say a supermodel because it, it is the strata of their modeling career. And wouldn't you say you're a super agent in the same way? Oh, I mean, I think the talent is more the super one. We're the deal makers behind the scenes. So I know the term has been thrown around. Dennis Rodman always calls me that, some of my guys. But like I said, I choose to stay humble and understand that those guys are making my life a lot easier, allowing me to negotiate the deals that we do because they're the ones that all accomplished historic um, situations in their profession. Totally, totally. And um, and the truth is, I, I have to make a confession, which I feel badly about. I've been hounding your representation to send me excerpts and stuff when I didn't even consider going to the store and buying the book because I'm an idiot. So today I went to the store and I bought the book. And uh, and now I wish I had bought it last week because it's amazing. And um, you know, I've, I've had my head in it all day. And uh, I feel like I've known you a little bit. 
And Darren is a, he's a very interesting guy, and he's a drug addict just like me and probably many of you. And, um, and he's an entrepreneur. And, and from what I could tell from reading the beginning, Darren made his, his first, uh, his beginning, his entree into business was in baseball cards. And he would buy and sell baseball cards at such a, such a rate that he wound up making a fortune of money doing it. Um, I imagine that it got you very high just selling the cards, just the entrepreneurship. Was it a similar high to the high of uh, opiates? Absolutely, a hundred percent. I mean, I started a business when I was fourteen years old in nineteen eighty four. I had a lot of insecurities and adequacies. I was labeled learning disabled or ADD, whatever you would call it. It was ADD. You got labeled uh, attention deficit. Yeah, I got. You know, know, back then they didn't really know what ADD was. It wasn't even a label. So you know, here I have all these insecurities. I'm verbally teased for being an idiot. I'm in small classrooms, and this opportunity came up in my mind where I created this business because I accumulated so many baseball cards, uh, holding down three odd jobs uh, from delivering newspapers. I was a busboy. I squeezed orange juice at a local supermarket. And when all my guy friends started dating, I was such a late bloomer. I didn't really care about that. And they needed money and baseball cards were corny at what everybody's collection. And before you know it, I had about $8,000 worth of cards. And I asked my dad one night to get me uh, homeowner's insurance for about eight or nine and I uh, thought I was crazy because all right I'll get you a thousand dollars worth of insurance and I said no I said that eight or nine thousand so now he really thinks I'm crazy I sit down with him I show him the cards I show him the price guide why they're worth so much and he challenged me and said how do you know you can sell them and who would buy them and two weeks later there was a convention in Livingston New Jersey at the old holiday inn on route 10 I spent about two weeks every single night preparing this eight-foot table uh, that I was sharing with my friend Steve Simon, who ironically now runs my agency, and uh, like it was the biggest opportunity in my life, and uh, I made over $1,000 on that Sunday afternoon, and that was it, you know, just, I, I, I didn't turn back, I uh, I just felt alive, I felt like I found my purpose, my calling, the wheeling, the dealing, the action, but right. then when I came home on that Sunday night, Dave, the interesting thing was that emptiness came right back. Right, after the high of... I felt like that kid, that learning disabled kid, that was worth nothing again. I love the way you describe that. I remember, and this sounds very corny, but I remember when I would go to summer camp, right? And, uh, and I never liked summer camp. I never had a lot of friends there, and I always felt pretty alone. That was like when I really would feel the most alone. And I remember on visiting day, like when your family would show up and you'd kind of get to do whatever you want, when they would leave, I would have this terrible feeling. And I would access it as I got older, that that was the feeling. And it kind of reminds me of what you're talking about in terms I, of... I know. I, 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 that's the weirdest thing. I had the same thing. It's big. Every, every time I was in summer camp, it took me a good week or two to warm up and get rid of that homesickness. And then mom and dad would come up. I was so excited. They would leave. And I was heartbroken again. But then I would get reacclimated. But I understand the feeling. Absolutely. The emptiness, the anxiety. Yeah. Uh, you know, the fears that I would bring upon myself. And when when did um did that first faithful trip to the dentist play in? Did you already had started the the baseball card it, it, business? It, it wasn't the dentist. You just started reading the book. It was in sleepaway camp at twelve years old, Camp Emerson. I thought there was a dentistry thing before the, the... That was second. Ah, that was second. okay. So tell the, uh, tell this. I love the summer camp uh, Demerol the story. The summer camp story, and I talk about this all the time, and I do my speaking engagements. That um, I had horrible stomach pains one night. I was twelve years old. 
maybe 13, and I said um, to the counter, I need to go to the infirmary, took me, and um, this nurse named Greta gave me this green liquid in a cloth syrup cup, and it tasted absolutely horrible, and five minutes later, as I'm walking across the softball field, this love affair started, this feeling, this warmth, where I finally felt a part of, I finally felt equal. I felt like I belonged in the world. I felt like I arrived. I was smart. I was funny. I was charming. I was yeah, it was the I have arrived alcoholic I, I, moment. Totally. That's it, man. I was good looking. I got back to the bunk. I was the funny guy. I was the cool one. I had the courage to go the next to the bunk next door and flirt with all the girls. And, you know, thinking nothing of it, I go, back, I go to bed that night, wake up, do all my activities the next day. And that very next night, I'm lying in bed with no stomach pains, none. And I said to the counselor, I'm looking up at the sky thinking, man, that feeling was amazing. And I look at the counselor and I said, my stomach is killing me. we got to go back to the infirmary. And I did that for three straight weeks until mom and dad came for visitation day and found that I was taking liquid Demerol. And that was the end of that. I mean, that's the craziest thing that the camp is prescribing you fucking liquid Demerol. I've never heard of such a thing. Um, that's nuts. But... You did it every day over the summer. You know, every every day in that three week period, you did it. You could go back, yep. and they would give you a dose, basically. Yep. Now, yep. how long did it happen before you had your first sort of opiate based habit uh, at home? It, it took a couple of years. That that's where we get to the dentist appointment, probably when I was fourteen, fifteen. I would say actually more because I was fifteen because I, I actually had money in my pocket then because the baseball business started to take off. But I went to get a couple of wisdom teeth pulled, and the dentist gave my mom a prescription for Vicodins. And I remember just taking two pills, being in a lot of pain, going to lie down in bed, and I was freaking flying. It was that exact same feeling came back. I'm calling up my friends, loving life. Um, I'm sneaking down to the kitchen in the middle of the night, taking another couple pills as my parents are sleeping. Um, you know, my mom wakes up in the morning and half the bottle's gone. You know, by the end of the day, they're all gone. And um, now I know I'm in trouble because I was like, damn it. Yeah, you know, I'm actually in pain and I'm out of these pills. So the next morning I wake up and I put the crocodile tears on. Mom, my tooth is killing me. We've got to go back to the dentist. And I did the same thing to him manipulated, lied, did whatever I had to do, and he prescribed another bottle. And um, that was it. You know, for the next five, six years, drugs, alcohol, whatever it was, you name it, I did it. And there was no repercussions whatsoever. I was on top of the roll, making more money than you could ever imagine. More yeah. money than most of my friends' fathers. I was a, you know, in my own industry, I, I, I was a superstar, um, you know, just getting a lot of press coverage. And uh, me and three other, you know, very prominent baseball card dealers uh, that were, you know, late teens. We, we, we just, we called ourselves legal drug dealers. And because uh, we were just, we would make tens of thousands of dollars each on a Sunday or a Saturday afternoon buying, selling, and trading at these trade shows. But, you know, while I'm living that life, there's also the underlining root of all that shit that I never cleared out. So, um, you know, eventually it all caught up to me. Well, I'm I'm really curious because I mean the dope you know the, our audience is called the Dopey Nation and they need to understand that like Darren was a teenager making two hundred thousand dollars a year selling baseball cards he you you were so good at it and it came the the entrepreneurship came incredibly natural to you and I love that you know the excitement and and the talent and the hard work you you know I mean I think that lots of addicts out there. Um, 
they need to fill their time. They need to keep their mind active. I, I like I'm very obsessive with Dopey. I mean, I do not make two hundred thousand dollars a year at it, unfortunately. But like, I put a lot of time into it, and I'm really like careful with it, and I think about it, and I and I know lots of addicts who have a hobby put their time into it. You fucking went overdrive on this thing, and it really paid off, and it really showed you uh, your talent. Which is so fun to read. It's so exciting to read about it, you know. The- yeah, and, you know. And my dad was my mentor. He was a brilliant businessman. He passed away a couple of years ago, but you know, I, I just became a sponge and to get his love and support and his excitement to see that. Holy crap! Look at my son. My nice you know, Jewish boy is killing it in ex- the baseball ex- card game. Ex- ex- exactly, exactly. And next, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm my freshman year in college. I'm on the front page of the USA Today. I'm doing twelve shows. I'm in the New York Post, New York Times, Wall Street Journal. Like, yeah, his, I, I, I didn't make it in college. I dropped out my freshman year, but now, um, you know, my parents are starting to say, "Wow, this is something really special is happening." You know, we think our son found his calling. Well, you did, but you also, and you had a habit at that point. Oh, yeah, I had a habit. And then um, eventually I got out of the baseball card business. I started doing private autograph signings with some of the biggest athletes and celebrities. I had a merchandise company, and I did that for about three, four years and got myself in a lot of legal problems. I was arrested in my early 20s four times for possession. Yeah, I was just reading um, about that. I was just I was just reading about that, that Darren went to an Almond Brothers show, and some dude threw him a bag of Xanax and ecstasy and weed, and the next, and he, then he smokes a joint at the Almond Brothers, and uh, who drove you home from the band? Uh, Warren Haynes. Shut the fuck up. That's insane. That's insane. Yep. Um, yep. So you're. So what yep. other legal problems were you? I mean, I really want to know where you were getting the pills on a daily basis. Well, it was easy, man. I mean, I, I had money, I had access, so it was either from doctors or I would just buy them. And um, eventually, uh, you know, I, when I got out of that business and I started the agency, uh, Prince Martin Group, in 1985. And Magic Johnson was my first client. I knew that I had to get away from the illegal drugs. And I did really have sciatica. You know, it wasn't fabricated. It wasn't made up. I would jump from the stresses. I would get shooting pains in my back, my legs. So going to doctors and playing it up and getting the epidurals and everything, it was easy to get a couple hundred percent Vicodin oxys each month. And they saw from the outside... Well, the success I had working with, you know, Muhammad Ali, Joe Frazier, Pamela Anderson, Chevy Chase, you know, Magic, obviously, all these icons. And why in the world would they think I had an issue? And um, for years, it worked. For years, it worked. I tell people I've built up an amazing business in the industry, um, you know, six, seven, eight years. I was kicking ass. And I just don't know when it turned. I don't know when that moment happened where all of a sudden I lost the sense of self. And uh, got to a point where I didn't want to live it anymore. So you like rode you rode the high because like another thing about Darren, which is very 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 different than most addicts that I've come into contact with, and you kind of describe it in the title of the book, hit bottom at the top. Like your company was only skyrocketing, and you jumped too far ahead. I have a lot of questions about all those things you were just saying. Sure, but um, but. You know, I, I want to get to like if you're buying when you're buying drugs illegally. You know, you're buying ecstasy and you're getting pills and you're uh, on. You, were you on dead tour? Oh my god, yeah, of course. I would take seven, eight, nine of my friends because I was the one with the money. We, you know, I'd pay for the hotels, I'd pay for the car services, rental cars, the ecstasy, you know, the the weed, the, the food, whatever it was. You know, everything was on my tab because I was making 
hundreds of thousands of dollars at the time, and my fat boys couldn't afford it. Yeah, what, were you one of these guys with the nitrous tanks in the hotel room? Uh, yeah, you know we love we love the nitrous tanks. You yeah. have any good? You have any good crazy stories from from Dead Tour that you would like to share with the Dopey Nation, real quick? Uh, I mean, you know, I just there were so many amazing shows I went to uh, up at RFK. I remember seeing a Casey Jones for the first time in decades. It was like such a rarity. We did we did one year at the Garden, I think in ninety one, ninety two. We went every single night, eight nights in a row, right up front. You know, Bobby spitting during Sunshine and Daydream on us, like literally the front row. But it was you know, Brent was out of his mind with his eyes rolling. Um, Jerry kept missing the signals and flubbing the words. Yeah. He was so whacked out of he was so whacked out of his mind. And well, you know the experience when you're there and you're tripping balls yourself on ecstasy and they're freaking rolling. It's the most life changing sensation, night in and night out. And every song is just like beyond euphoric. And, I think uh, I think I was there in '91. That was the first time I dosed. Was '91 at Madison Square Garden. So maybe we're there at the same time. So oh. I'll, give, I'll, give, I'll give you. A, Probably one of my crazy. It's not a dead story, but at the wetlands, me and my friend Jeremy go, and I take a hit of gel acid for the first time. Probably 1990, and the Blues Travelers were just getting somewhat popular. So yeah. we went backstage. Somehow we got backstage to party with John Popper and Chad, the, the guitarist that passed away, and we're partying with them. And Jeremy gives me a hit of this gel acid, and we go to up to the front of the stage. We're going to take a, a, a piss, and we go as we're locking out of the bathroom. We're going to the front of the stage, and I'm talking, and all of a sudden. We both see the head of acid fly out of my mouth. I never took acid before. He's like, dude, did you see that? I'm like, yeah. I'm like, oh my God. I'm like, bro, I thought I swallowed it. He's like, dude, there's no way. It just blew out of your mouth. I'm like, how crazy is that? I was like, do you have any more? He goes, yeah, dude. He goes, don't worry about it. I got a couple more. Take another one. Bro, we didn't realize I was already tripping at that point. That's what we were seeing. We were seeing the head of acid come out of my mouth. I was up for three straight days. The first time I took acid because I was actually on two doses now, heavy doses of gel of acid. I had to go to a family wedding, and the next day it was a freaking disaster. Were you still but, tripping at the wedding? Yeah, I was tripping at the wedding. Me and my, me, me, my, my, one of my other buddies, we went to Sedona. We rented a Corvette convertible from Scottsdale to Sedona. Same thing, just stupid shit. Took a, took a hit of acid. And we're out of our minds. Must have got pulled over three different times on the ride from different cops because the top was down on the square back convertible. Life couldn't be better. I'm on top of the world. We're tripping our balls up, but clean acid. So we're not like yeah. out of our minds, out of our minds. We're really in that zone. And every time we get pulled over, we can't look at each other because we start getting into laughing rages. And we're like, they're going to arrest us. Crazy and, uh, fear and loathing. You look at, but you look at this shit. Like I had an Acura NSX when I was 22. I had a 800 horsepower Mitsubishi 3000 GT, and we would be whacked out of our minor weed and pills, and I'd be doing what we call these hell rides on Highway 280 um, in New Jersey at 130, 140 miles an hour. Wow! And like we look back, and we're like, how stupid. Some well, of the things that we did, you yeah. know. How great was Wetlands, though? You just even mentioning oh, that. Oh, my God. I mean, I was there with the radiators and the spin doctors, and it was just an incredible time. That incredible was time. that was where, I, I mean, I grew up in Manhattan, and, uh, and and people would ask me if I go to clubs, and I'd be like, well, I go to Wetlands. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, and Wetlands was like, it was like the only hippie club in Manhattan, and they had reggae parties every week. And uh, and you could go there. It was just an amazing place, and the city was much different back then. And you bringing that up just 
it brings back uh, my youth, which I'm I love to hear about. And, and, and that, I, I don't know how old, how old are you? I'm 44. Okay, so yeah, I'll be 49 in, in, in a couple of weeks. So, you know, that generation, we got the best ecstasy in the world. Yeah. I always talk about that. Like, we got the real, real deal MDMA, not like the rave drug that the later generations got. There was two colleges in America, one was University of Texas, and the other was University of Maryland, and that's where it came from. And my sister was in Maryland. I would go down and buy, you know, a thousand hips, literally a thousand for whatever it was, 10 grand. And for the next couple of months, you know, I was the guy giving it to my friends for free. Nobody paid me. It was just, we had a blast. Well, you had the, the really strange combination of having unlimited money with the drug problem, which is like, it's yeah. very rare to hear that. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I know. I know. I know. And, 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 and than this, I, like I tell people, I was, I'm a drug addict. Thank God I don't think I ever call myself a drug abuser. Like, of course, there were nights I took five, six hits of ecstasy, but even at my worst, when I got rid of the illegal drugs, I didn't take more than eight or ten pills a day with the opiates because I would get nauseous at a certain point. So thank God my system signaled that because I wouldn't be here to tell my story right now. Well, your your kidney. I mean, you know, you were doing clean ecstasy, and that was another question I wanted to ask. Like having that much money and being, you really could curate what drugs you wanted to do. Like you probably, I mean, considering the scenes you were in, the money that you had, you know, dead scene at the time, there were like specific chemists running around. Did you know those guys who were who was making what and all that shit? You know, you did, we did. We kind of knew who had the best stuff, and we just made sure we had a good relationship with them. And they knew Darren Cole. Darren always had money, and we all got along with each other. And, of course, they want repeat business. So I would make sure I got the best stuff, and they make sure they give me the best stuff. Yeah, me and my friends were like just taking whatever we could find wherever we were. It's like our stories are the most opposite drug addict stories in the world. As, as I would take drugs, everything got worse. And somehow for you, the Prince agent, the Prince Marketing Group came together. And so tell me about when you signed Magic Johnson, uh, you were doing card shows and Magic was making an appearance and you something clicked in your head or you had already done the show with oh, no, Muhammad no, no. Ali. Yeah, I, I already got out of the, I already got out of the card business at that point and what, 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 what happened was I would go to card shows and I would start seeing lines of people wrapped around the corner when I got there in the morning but what the hell's going on? And we would hear Joe DiMaggio's here, here today, Mickey Mantle's here today, Pete Rose, Wade Boggs, Daryl Strawberry and I was fascinated that you could actually go meet your sports hero, get an autograph, take a picture with them and I go, wait a minute, this is amazing and especially obviously being insecure loving that sort of limelight I was really drawn to it. So, and then I realized you could obviously make a lot of money with it. So, through uh, Jeff Hamilton, a fame leather jacket designer, introduced me to Harlan Runner, who is one of my closest friends in the world. Both of them still are to this day. Harlan is Muhammad Ali's agent, and he was the first one I went after for a private signing. And then eventually, Harlan put me in touch with Lon Rosen, who was Magic's longtime player rep. And I developed a relationship with Magic, and I got Chevy Chase on my own, and Pamela Anderson. And um, that, I did that for about four years. I had a very, very successful private autograph signing company where we would broker these signings and just random companies would buy product and we had a 
great mail order company. I mean, did that for, like I said, about four or five years. So before you represented anybody, you were setting up signings with them. That was the origin. Exactly. Of so, okay. that, so, so that's how I developed the relationships. Yep. And in that transitionary period, were you like debaucherous, off the charts, taking ecstasy? And were you doing coke too, or not? I don't hear a yeah, lot yeah, of like. I did coke. I, I, I did coke. You know, there, there, there was there was times. Uh, obviously, I won't mention the names, but there was a ex-girlfriend that by accident one night we were high on freaking Percocets and we did a couple lines and I didn't realize the combination you know that, that became an obsession for years you know almost every night just sitting in my house and doing coke with um, the Percocets was almost like a heroinish like I never did heroin but that's what I was told that was my next question you're in all of these scenes with all of these drugs and the only drug that's not landing on you is heroin how did that happen? You know, I, I just think everything else worked, thank God. And for some reason, you know, I, I just, I, I never found it appealing uh, to inject drugs, yet I did find it appealing to inject steroids. Well, but you were snorting, that. you were snorting Percocets. I mean, yeah. I, I, I snorted heroin at first. Like, I'm just yeah, surprised okay. in that day and age, because there was dope in those scenes, you know. That, oh, yeah. Yeah, and I just think of it, you know, I thought it was too difficult, you know, and, and crazy at the same time. Difficult when you're in public. I'm like, I'm not putting a needle in my arm. I'm like, but I could just snort something or digest something beforehand and then be good to go or inhale something. So it just really never crossed my mind. Right. That's It's just amazing. I mean, that that was a great stroke of fortune for you. You know, just an amazing stroke of fortune for Absolutely. you. Now, when you were making the transition from signing Magic to doing card appearances and actually representing him, how did that come about? Because from what I understand, he he signed with you because he believed in you. How, how did you, what did you do? How did you wow him? So I, I, I wound up getting in a lot of legal problems. I'm not going to the whole story. I was investigated by the FBI. Um, it's in my book. And I lost everything. The first time in my life I was in massive debt. I was almost a million dollars in debt on the verge of bankruptcy. Why did they investigate you? What was it for? Uh, mail fraud. Okay. And um, I, I basically got clear, but they charged me with making a false statement and you know, got a felony charge against me. And my dad basically pushed me. He was always that mentor and said... Uh, what's your next move? We were on this epic fly fishing trip. I took him to Alaska with like the last thirty thousand dollars I had to my name. He didn't want me to go. Being the old school Jewish father, didn't want me spending the money, but I didn't care. I needed it, and him and I loved to fish. And I said, I want to be an agent, Dad, but I don't. Um, I don't have a law degree, so you know, I want to do the bigger things. I see what these guys do, like the commercials, the intellectual property stuff, the corporate events, the licensing, and he's like, you don't need to be a lawyer. Because, Darren, life is all about who you know, not what you know. And you know more people than the biggest lawyers you can know. Why don't you speak to Magic? He supported you through this whole FBI thing. Tell him what your vision is. Maybe he'll give you a shot. And at the time, him and his longtime player rep, Lon Rosenlaub, was with a different agency. And, um, you know, I didn't know what their relationship was. And I was direct with Magic at this point. And so about a month later, I was in uh, Michigan at an appearance we had. And it was just, it was almost like, God's will at that time because he was by himself in the hotel suite when I went to get him and he invited me in his room had me sit down he's such an amazing personal guy he asked about life asked how I was doing you know how he was doing financially and just said to me uh, what are you doing with the business and uh, I just took a deep breath and I knew I gotta go for it that was my opening I needed to say something and um, I went for it 
and I told him, and I told him what my vision was, and he's like, do you have a good entertainment lawyer? I said, no, he goes, well, you got a better, better fine one. He goes, you know, I love you, and I love your family. I want the best for you. I'm going to give you two years to represent me as my agent, but if you don't use me to knock on every door to bring in all the icons and celebrities you can to build your agency, I'm going to fire you before the two years is up, because it's not how successful I become, Darren. It's how successful I make you and everybody else around me, that it's a domino effect. Wow. I can't believe it. He's, said, he's actually sitting here telling me at 25 years old to exploit him. Well, you know what it is? It's amazing because he was a master at sharing the basketball. He wanted the yep. people around him to, to be better so that he would be better, and he used the same principle on you. It's amazing. Yep. You yep. know, because that was his game. His game was yep. to make the team great. I mean, he was so fun to watch, to hear that story. That just shows he played the way he was, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. 100% the same way. I love that. Um, so yeah. tell me about, like, in that little... Also, how did your dad not know that you were just up to your gills and fucking pharmaceuticals and ecstasy and acid and all this stuff? Well, I mean, once I started Prince Martin, it was just the opiate. So it wasn't... And I also moved out at a very young age because I had money for my own apartment. Right, so right, right. They didn't really know. You know, they'd smell weed once in a while when they come to my apartment and, and be annoyed and say something, but again, I'm functioning, so they're blinded by the fact that I'm successful, and you know, I got all these employees, and great business, and you know, you know money, and... And it's like you were like a hippie, he knew you liked rock and roll, and he knew that that was part of your thing, and you're incredibly successful, so let him smoke a little weed or whatever kind of thing, right? Yeah, I mean, like I said, they would make comments here and there... But they also knew they weren't going to stop me because whatever, I, I was, you know, not just functioning, I was thriving. So talk about the transition from the street drugs to strictly pharmaceutical opiates. And it was, was it because of the magic deal? Absolutely. So, you know, he basically, when I signed with him, the, mor- the morality clause, that was everything. I, don't, I did not want to jeopardize this golden opportunity of having him and then knowing I was going to be representing other icons along the way. And I just stopped everything, and it just became all about opiates, oxys, percocets, and vitamins. So he put a clause in called the morality clause? Any, any talent that you represent, for the most part, I would imagine to this day, both ways, it's reciprocal. The celebrity and the agent both have morality clauses that if one acts out one way or the other, you know, uh, uh, damages their image, that you know, either one of the parties can terminate. All right. So once you sign this morality clause in your head, you're like, fuck it, I can switch gears and just go totally pharmaceutical. Exactly. And, and what did that look like? You went to a doctor? Did you have like. Were you like Elvis style with doctors lined up who you knew you would get? I, I, I didn't eat that. I remember I didn't eat that many. I had basically two back home, and then I had a couple on the road. If I was in Chicago or LA, I had different doctors. San Francisco, if I ran out, but I really didn't eat that because a lot of times, like I said, if I was on like a five six day road trip, I would take enough from uh, New Jersey with my so it's good to go. Right, and it was like oxy's, Percocet, and you didn't take no benzos. Um, I, I only took benzos if I was doing coke, so I really didn't take them at once I started the agency because I wasn't doing coke anymore. 
And and one of your b- first really big achievements, and correct me if I'm wrong, because I've only been kind of skimming everything, and I feel terrible about that. I didn't want to put the the interview off another week, though. I figured I wanted to, to get you on the phone when I could, but I feel stupid that I bought the fucking book today, to be totally honest with you. Um, no problem. Um, but I did listen to a ton of your interviews. I listened to you on Anna David. I listened to you on That Sober Guy. I saw you on YouTube. I, I've been cultivating a little Darren Prince knowledge, so... Give me a little, little bit of credit. But um, right. so when you put together the Muhammad Ali Joe Frazier summit, was that like the the really the the biggest thing that was happening for you when you did it? I'll never duplicate anything else like it. I mean, it's uh, you know, nor will I mean think about it. In the most iconic duo rivalry in the history of global sports. So I don't really know how much more any agent could have accomplished not all done by me but um again nothing to do with money but look what's going on in the world it was all about trying to send this message of world peace and these two you know kings finally getting together and bearing the hatchet to try to send the message across the world that we can do it so can everybody else was that in the era was that when they had just done those movies the documentaries on the fights when we were kings and there was uh, yeah but it's about a couple years after when we were kings but it was right after the ollie fraser one nation divisible documentary that was on hbo that won a bunch of emmys and um so it was just time and you know working with both and having an individual relationship with both of them you know my dad helped behind the scene harlan werner who's muhammad's longtime rep helped behind the scenes tremendously and it was just a perfect storm it was nba all-star weekend in philadelphia and Harlan calls me that Lonnie, Ali, and Muhammad that they want us uh, to come to his suite for dinner with uh, his son, Marvis, and my buddy, Nick, who's one of my agents and business partners. He was in Philly with me for All-Star Game weekend, and we're like, holy shit, bro, this is this is happening. This is really freaking going down, because once we asked Joe, he felt comfortable that it was in Philadelphia. He didn't want to do it on Ali's turf in Arizona, Kentucky, or California. He just really had a paranoia that Ollie was going to try to set him up and do something stupid again. Well, I heard I heard Joe Frazier on the Howard Stern show time and time again, and he would just talk so much shit about Muhammad Ali because Muhammad Ali said some really hateful stuff about Joe Frazier in the 70s. Yeah. You know, and, 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 and Joe Frazier was so sweet, and he was like, he really hurt me. You know what I mean? Like when you would hear Joe Frazier talk about it, you were kind of like, you, you felt bad because, you know, Muhammad Ali is this ridiculously charismatic guy who you can't help but love. And then you find out that he hurt, you know, smoking Joe Frazier's feelings. And you're like, oh, man. You know what I mean? Like, and so. Even deeper than that, you know, I became a historian. Joe lent Muhammad money when he was banned from boxing. And the minute the fight got signed, for the fight of century, March 8, 1971, Muhammad gets out of the limousine in New York uh, when Joe handed him some money and just starts destroying Joe right in the middle of Times Square. Joe Fraser, you know, you ugly this, you gorilla, you know, just starts destroying him and uh, eventually casted him as like an Uncle Tom, like a white man's champion. And it caused issues for Joe's kids at school. They'd have to get bodyguards and security and basically turn the entire you know, country against Joe, and then, you know, the world got divided over it, and uh, it was, like, right in the midst of the Vietnam War, so it became, like, there were these political figures, and Joe's like, this is just the fight, man, and now, because of your comments, you're bringing my family into this. And, and here I am, being a loyal brother, giving you money when you're down on your luck, and you're still turning on me. So there was a lot of animosity. 
And so, and at the summit, you know, Darren is fucking popping Percocets right and left. Nobody's I'm, noticing. I'm high, I'm, high, I'm high as a kite the entire time because I did not feel worthy of being there in that situation. As well as I knew them both, I just said, this is the craziest thing I've ever experienced. I mean, Nelson Mandela, the president, the biggest rock stars, whoever, would have killed to be in my shoes in the moment. And I just couldn't be present for it. When it happened, was Muhammad Ali too far gone in the Parkinson's to really give a nice apology, or did he give a nice apology? No, I mean, they, they, they spoke a little bit. You know, the Parkinson's was bad, but um, it was genuine. It was 100% genuine. I love that story. And I think, you know, not only you're talking about self-esteem and whatever, but you had a habit. If you didn't do the Percocets, you were going to get sick. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, Absolutely. Did you find yourself uh, in withdrawal a lot? I mean, you were on pills for how many years straight? I, I mean, kidding me? Yeah, I was on it. I, I never let myself get to a point where I was that desperate for them. I always made sure I had them um, until the end when I tried to get clean. But, I mean, I was on it for 20-something years. Straight. Like, And, and since you yeah. had these doctors, you would never oh, yeah. run out. No, I've been never on it. 23 years. you got to figure I started when I was 15. I mean, there was obviously random drugs in between, but it was always a constant, the opiates. Yeah, the opiates, it's like, it's amazing because it's amazing how it can hit one person in this way that it makes you feel okay in the universe, and then it hits somebody else, and they don't feel... Or they feel get it. violently nauseous, or they don't, they don't feel anything, or it just works on pain because they're taking them for the right reasons. And, and so, what? When did things start to change for you um, with um, with with the drugs and your career and your life? Like when? Because I mean, like your your career never suffered from the drugs, right? Well, I mean, there was a point. I shouldn't say that there, there was three years into the agency, and I talk about this in the book. I wound up having a lot of tax problems. I was so out of my mind, not paying attention. Um, there was a bunch of money coming in. I wasn't staying current with taxes. There was IRS liens. And, um, you know, because I was so whacked out, I, I wasn't properly getting things to the account on time. There was penalties, interest. And I eventually crawled out of it, thank God, because there was money coming in. But, yeah, I did. The business did suffer because I was so high and not paying attention, thinking like I'm on top of the world. And, you know, when I do speeches to high schools and colleges, I talk about that because that is important. It wasn't just a skyrocket job like the baseball player business. There were moments that, you know, the drugs definitely hurt and distracted me being on this mission to build uh, an empire of an agency. Right, and you really did build an empire of an agency. You signed Chevy Chase, who's one of my heroes, Pamela Anderson. I've been, I've been, with, him, I've been with him the past two days in Los Angeles. We took him to the Lakers game Monday night. How's he doing? His daughter. He's doing great. He looks great. He's going to be 76 in October, as funny as ever. Uh, him and his wife, Janie, are just amazing people. There were horrible rumors that he was having a really hard time with pills. Is that true or not true, or you don't want to talk uh, about at, it? At some points in his life, he struggled with that stuff, but he's doing great. He's doing great now. And, and how did you wind up with, uh, with Dennis Rodman, you know, a great potential dopey guest? Yeah, um, Dennis, I met during the 95-96 NBA Finals when they were playing Seattle. Jeff Hamilton, the famed leather jacket designer, walked me down to the court introduced me to Dennis and his agent at the time and literally that night Dennis invited me to a strip club Crazy Horse in Chicago and I started working for his agent for about three three years they broke up Dennis and I lost contact for about a year and a half and then we came together 
full time in around 2000. Did you get high with him? Did he know you were getting no, high? Here's, the thing. here's something I always like to stress Dennis has never done a drug in his life. Dennis's drug is alcohol. Oh, I didn't know that. Doesn't, doesn't smoke weed, never goes near the other, the other stuff, hates it. Okay. You know, it's actually very paranoid around it. So we would drink together and party at strip clubs and go nuts, but that was about the extent of it. That's so funny because I, I always had the wrong idea then. I always just figured and he was a crazy. It's not just you. Every, everybody does. Everyone thinks the same thing. Yep. So then I, in the book, one of the other things I read about was when he got sober, you were like, good for Dennis, too bad I can't do it. And, exactly. Um, and so what was that like when you were watching somebody, because he was a total fuck-up, and he got his life back together, and were you like, fuck, if this guy can do it, why can't I? Not now, because I was in such denial at that point. Like, the reality was I was thinking, you know, damn, he got sober, why can't I? But, you know, my back, you know, i got back issues, you know, I've got a lot of celebrities, I'm under a lot of pressure, there was a lot of justification in my mind. Yeah, that makes sense. And and with the morality clause, you never slipped up. You never found yourself like doing coke or like. Yeah, in- no, like I've mean, I mean, I mean, never. It was like I said, I, I, I was fine getting get high the way I was off the opiates. There was no reason to ever go that other direction. And you got married in that time too, right? I got married in that time too. Yeah, I met my then wife where I was high on opiates. I mean, literally, again, another story in the book, I don't want to keep giving it away, but um, our very first lunch date, um, I pulled out a bottle of Vicodins and asked if she wanted one. She looked at me like I was nuts. She didn't understand why I was taking Vicodins. And you're like, because they're great. That's why I'm taking them. Exactly. Exactly. Yep. You have kids? No, I don't. All right. Well, there's always time. There's yep. always there's always time for that. I want to hear yep. about the great um, sobering up of Darren Prince. What what well, was the thing? That, that's the best part of the story. Um, I had an overdose in Las Vegas in February 2007. What what did you uh, overdose on? What was that story? Uh, 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 X cough syrup, Vicodins, uh, uh, and I was I was drinking vodka ripple and cranberry in my hotel room and. Um, that next week when I came home, I called an addiction psychiatrist and told me I was an opiate addict. He put me on Suboxone. So I'm on Suboxone, a mood stabilizer, an antidepressant, anxiety medication, chewing and sniffing on Ambien before I go to bed at night, and occasionally getting drunk during the week to the point of blackout on all that stuff because I don't want to feel anymore. And my uncle and his then-girlfriend, who were both in the 12-step fellowship, uh, were visiting my mom in New Jersey. And uh, I never met her before. She just walked into my condo and said, are you okay? And I was at the jumping off point then. My, my office had no clue what to do with me. And um, I said, no, I'm not. And I spilled my guts. I told her everything. She goes, do you realize you're an addict? Your life's unmanageable. I said, absolutely. She goes, do you realize no matter what you've accomplished in the outside world, it means absolutely nothing. Are you willing to do whatever it takes to get sober? I said, 100%. I'm desperate. I'll do anything. And she says, I can show you the easier show off your life, but you got to listen to me on everything. And um, she put me on a detox plan. And on the third day, I just came back on a Sunday night, July 2nd, 2008, from working out. And I started getting the cravings out of control. Yeah. And I called her and my uncle up and said, I can't do this. I'm an opiatic. I'm sick. I'm, I, I, I need help. Um, I'm going to call the freaking doctor and get opiates. And they both start screaming, you know, you can't do that. This is the goddamn disease talk, and you have to go online. You promised to do anything I told you to do. 
you need to go to a 12-step meeting, put your hand up and tell these people you're sick, you're suffering, and you need help. I said, there's no freaking way I'm doing that. I hung up the phone. I ran into the bathroom to take Clonopin, which yeah. was allowing me to take the help with the detox. And as I opened the bottle, I poured it out into my hand. Four extra friends wiped it and fell out. Me and my then wife thought we cleared out all the medicine cabinets of the opiates. And for a split second, it seemed like a gift from God. And then the change happened. Then the turn. And I heard that this is a curse from the devil. I fell on my knees for the first time in my life, looking up at the sky, trembling, shaking, crying, saying, dear God, help me. I can't do this without you. I need a day of freedom. I'm begging you, take the money, the notoriety, the business. I do not care. And I felt the warmth on my right shoulder. And I heard the voice, I've got you, and you're ready. Really? I stood up. I flushed the pills. I wound up in the living room a minute later on the computer, found a 12-step meeting on the taxi ride over, thinking to myself, holy crap, what the hell just happened? For the first time in 23 years, Darren Prince wanted to stay sober more than he wanted to get high, and by the grace of God, that was the day that I walked into a church basement with 150, 200 people with no shame. I threw my hand right up. They said, is anybody new? I said, I'm Darren. I'm an addict. I've got two days clean. I'm sick. I'm suffering. I'm desperate. I need anybody's help to get through this. I don't know what I'm going to do. And those people, all once addicts and alcoholics that were once of a hopeless state of mind, not Magic Johnson or Muhammad Ali or Hulk Hogan or Dennis Rodman or Chevy Chase or Pam Anderson, those people in that church basement in the upper 90s showed me the softer, easier way. And one day at a time, they started to love me before I knew how to love myself. And I did the reverse commute back to New Jersey. And that's where I found my home group and the people that slowly gave me this life beyond my wildest dreams. And I had to get the desperation. It's amazing. It's amazing because, I mean, you know, like that didn't happen for me. You know, in those situations, when I'm sick and I'm in the bathroom and I'm going through pills and four Vicodins fall out, like I'm taking the Vicodin when I'm sick. You you had a moment, like a real divine inspired moment. I had I had the awakening. I had it. That's amazing. It's amazing. Um, and then like, wow. So you didn't have you 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 got clean and you never had a relapse. I never had you know I never had a real well. Here's the thing. I tried the fellowship a few years before, but I didn't understand that I wasn't like you people. You know, you don't understand my life. All the normal, you know. I wouldn't. I'm certainly wouldn't say I was a first time winner uh, because I was in the program when I was 21 years old, court ordered. Right. And uh, again, didn't think I had a problem. I would say from the minute I had the willingness for the first time in my life um, and the desire to change, and I was sick and tired of being sick and tired. Yeah. Then I never had a relapse. That's awesome. There was never a desire to. There was never a desire to get sober and stay sober. And did you, were you able to go right back to work or how long did you take to get, you know, get your head sh- straight and to get your body back? And did you take some time? I, 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 I did whatever I had to do every morning going to the gym. I, I dieted the best that I could. I made sure my meetings, no matter what, no matter where I was in the country, I would go to meetings. If I traveled around the world, I would go to meetings. I don't think it's humanly possible. And I don't say this to impress. I say to impress upon. Not many people in the history of this fellowship have a road meeting record that I do. It's, it's physically impossible. Just in the past year and a half, Sydney, Australia, Monaco, Anguilla, Turks and Caicos, Toronto, Montreal, London, it comes first in my life. Right. And 
um, last month I'm with my fiance in Morea and we literally, we were in Bora Bora in the Morea, I called the call center in Tahiti. They put me in touch with somebody that spoke English and, fr and French. I literally took a ferry 45 minutes each way because he set up a meeting with eight people for me in Tahiti. Awesome. You know, it's just, it's, it's you know, and that's, that's the, that's what I learned early on, that this has to come first. All right, I'm going to ask you a question. I'm going to ask you a tough question here, based yeah. on this thing. Where where in the world was the worst meeting you went to? Uh, to uh, Tokyo, and I'll tell you why. It wasn't a bad meeting, but the subject, I only had a day. I was out there for an exhibition basketball game that Dennis Rahman was coaching. I was so bummed out. Here I am in Tokyo. I finally had a half a day. And everything was built around this meeting. And the subject of the meeting was breaking your anonymity on Facebook. became the whole hour talk because a woman was upset that one of her girlfriends shared how proud she was of celebrating uh, a one-year sober birthday. And I said, come on. I was like, damn it. I'm in Tokyo and that's the subject? And, and they, I never forgot it. They talked yeah, about it in English? Oh, yeah, 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 it was an English-speaking meeting. Yeah, so I was like, what a bummer, man. I was like, I got one day here, and that became the topic, the anonymity being broken on Facebook. Did you share? Were you like, you guys suck. Yeah, yeah, this isn't I even mean, AA. This isn't Facebook. It's AA. What about your sick, yeah, sick yeah, and stuff? Yeah, No. Yeah, um, I mean, but look, it is a, it was the, just, just the backups there. It's never a bad meeting. It's just ones that you get a little bit less out of than others. There's always something you get out of it. You take what you need and you'll eat the rest. Well, the best thing about meetings is like, especially in the beginning, is it's like you're fucked and you get to sit someplace for an hour and be safe and be less fucked. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, exactly. I, I love that. And I love being welcomed and I loved uh, feeling a part of it. And I, and I still love that. You know, um, another question is, uh, what is up with this Banyan Treatment Center? What's your connection to that? I had uh, Brandon Novak on the show a couple times and I know he works That's over there. Boy. That's my boy. All right. They were spiritual brothers to the end. He came to both two of my book release parties to help me celebrate. One in Florida, one in New York. Um, yeah, we're both reps for them. I mean, they're, they're some of the best treatment facilities in America. 11 property. Joe Tuttle uh, is an old friend I got reconnected with through a mutual spiritual brother. And um, they've just, uh, they're doing everything they can to help change and save lives. You know, so it's an organization I'm going to be associated with because when I'm out speaking, whether it's colleges, businesses, high schools, that when I'm done and somebody really comes clean because some God-given words that day came out of my mouth impacted somebody, I want to be able to say, hey, I can get you a vet. If right. you don't have insurance, if you don't have the means to do it, let me put you in touch with these people because they can take you through the detox and everything you need to get that life that you deserve. And it's such a gift to have them, you know, to support a mission like that. It's amazing. Yeah, that sounds great. And you didn't go there, though. You didn't go to band. No. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, I really appreciate you coming on, man. Uh, it was really cool to have you. And uh, I loved hearing about your story. And I loved hearing about your success. And I loved hearing about, uh, you know, I loved hearing about getting cheap yet very effective and clean ecstasy. You know, as a, as a young man, yeah. I think that was very exciting. Let me ask you this: what What do you think about fucking Dead and Company? You, you like John John Mayer singing Jerry tunes? How do you feel about that? Yeah, uh, no, I, I've, been, I've been to a bunch of the shows. I, th I think he's doing a good job. I do. I think he's doing great. You know? I, I agree to disagree. 
it's just not you know it's just not what it was but it's not bad i just feel like they just need somebody who can sing the song like those two i I once interviewed bob weir when i was high on heroin years ago at um Mm -hmm. in asbury park and uh, and I was a mess, you know what I'm saying? And he was he was in Rat Dog, and I was in my early 20s, and I was a total dick to him. I just kept asking him what it was like to be friends with Jerry, um, and he didn't like that. But I thought it was it, it was really funny. But now it's like I just feel like I love how John Mayer plays guitar, but he just doesn't sing the Jerry tunes. It's just not yeah, the yeah, voice. It, you need a fucking humble and subtle, soulful voice. I feel like if Jeff Tweedy toured with them, it might be something. Yeah, yeah, no, he'd, he'd be good. He would be good. But I think you know they've got a good thing with John Mayer, so they're going to keep it. Of course, working, you know. And he's a sex symbol for these for these kids, exactly, which, which is very exciting. Exactly. But um, yep, exactly. I really appreciate you coming on and um, and sharing your so story. So it's aiming before we cut off. So it's aiminghighbook.com. That's where everybody can buy it, either Amazon or aiminghighbook.com. Yeah, and, you, you um, should get this I book. It, it, it'll change and save, if not your life, somebody else's. And there's some ups and downs and a lot of inspirational stories about the business world too. So it's really you know a book for for everybody. You know, making mistakes and. Growing and learning from your mistakes. What I what I've what I've taken away from the the bit I've read, it's really an adventure story, and it's an exciting adventure story. Like there's exuberance in it, and I mean there's passion in it. That's why you know that's what it turned me on about the book. You know, you know, getting clean and getting better and finding God uh, are all amazing things. But but having passion is something that I really really uh, love and relate to. It's myself for the longest amount of time and then once you get real sobriety behind it you understand that AA means attitude adjustment and that's what my life is about just staying as peaceful and serene and centered as possible no matter what's going on even during the uncomfortable times in life like the worst loss of my life two years ago with my dad I never felt so comfortable because I stayed connected to the fellowship and I didn't have a single thought about getting high because I'm a part of the no matter what club what a beautiful gift that is to be able to have that because of all the spiritual brothers and sisters that came before me that instilled that in me right on man thank you so much for coming on um, if you ever Thanks, need bro. anything from me or audience just uh, give me a shout and, uh, and I really appreciate you being on the show thanks my man we'll be in touch alright man have a good one very cool to have Darren Prince call in on the show he's doing some good work out there and uh I don't know, he's associated with some really, really big-time people, and his story is pretty interesting to me. Um, now, back to some dopey business. Longtime friend of the show, perhaps the greatest female comedian addict and writer, the great Amy Dresner, back on Dopey. How you doing? Thank you. Oh, my God, that was like a little bit much, but hey, thank you. Well, let's think for a second. Let's put our heads together. Who is a better drug addict comedian writer than you that's well, a woman I don't do comedy really anymore that was like seven years I stopped doing comedy when I got arrested when I tried to stab my ex and like relapsed <laughs> but um as far as I, I can know. tell it's all comedy it's not that's comedy yeah well I think so I mean that's you know I mean that's the only way to view it to kind of get through it I think was Whoopi was Whoopi Goldberg an addict was she a crack addict or was that just shtick for comic relief do you know 
I don't know. I never heard that she was an addict. She probably isn't then. I can't think of a woman, a, a, like a notable woman addict comedian. There's a ton of guy ones, but I can't think of oh, a woman one. Oh, of course. One. I know. That's, well, Chelsea Handler is a pretty big drinker. But she's not in recovery, right? No, not that I know of. Yeah, that doesn't count. Uh, that's a really good, actually, yeah. Well, leave it to me to be like the only, <laughs> the only girl that fucking puts a needle in her arm and does stand up, of course. Uh, that's something, that's a note, that's an accomplishment. Uh, I get, well, yeah. Do you have any, uh, when you, like, I was at a meeting this morning, right, and, uh, and I, and I don't go, I go to, like, I, I'll just say it, I go to Alcoholics Anonymous, and I wasn't particularly the biggest alcoholic, and, uh, and, I, and I'm with very much, like, uh, middle-aged Long Islanders who are all, like, classic alcoholics. Right. And as I'm sitting there, it was a meditation meeting, and they're, they're a very sweet bunch, you know, these people. But I'm sitting there. Aren't, aren't you enlightened and evolved? You go to meditation meetings? Ugh. No, well, Wednesday was, I didn't know. Wednesday is the meditation <laughs> oh, meeting. It was an accident. That makes more sense. <laughs> I, I walk in, and there's a candle in the room. And it's like, it is such a classic bunch, like, of Long Islanders who, like, they just have the best accents. And one of the women in the group is this older German lady. And she just oh, has the best shares. She's just, I, I, I like this group. And I'm surprised that I like it. But as right. I'm sitting there after, the meditation is about uh, negative self-talk. You know what I'm oh, saying? Oh, God. Yeah. And, and I you and I. In that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We feast on negative self-talk. Yeah. Oh, totally. That's like all my writing. <laughs> I know. It's like it's like I only make friends through negative self-talk. That's that's all I do. And and so I'm sitting there in the meeting and I'm staring at my hands and I still have a bunch of scars from when I used to shoot heroin in my hands. Wow. You know, do you have any any needle scars left on you or no? No, cuz I was shooting cocaine and cocaine doesn't do that. Mm, I think I was just terrible at a- shooting. No, I mean, well, I wasn't like, you know, a phlebotomist by any means, but I mean, um, Coke doesn't really leave any scars because it's clear. I do have marks from um, cutting and from slitting my wrist, though. I have scars on my wrist from that, from when I took a box cutter and just slashed both wrists. Oh, yeah, yeah. So that's hot, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, everybody loves a damaged woman. <laughs> um, Do they? Where is that person? No, everybody. I need to find him. You just need to find a damaged man, and then you can be damaged together. <laughs> two, they, you know, they say two sickies can make a welly. Do not say that. Don't doesn't somebody say that? No. <laughs> no, they say it doesn't do that. Two sickies don't make a welly, is what they say. Yes. So I so I was I was talking to Amy last night, and and like I follow Amy's social media pretty voraciously, <laughs> and and recently she had this post, and uh, I think the post said something like, "I have ringworm. Want to come over?" Right? <laughs> it was something like that. <laughs> And I figured it was Amy with another classic tweet, right? <gasps> and I call her up or I text her and see if she's yeah, ready. That's to... how I get dick. That's how I get dick. <laughs> yeah, I got ringworm. Want to come over? I just thought it was that was funny, but it turns no, the tweet out was actually the tweet was actually I've been really depressed and smoking again, but then I got ringworm and that really cheered me up. <laughs> I don't know how that that makes me laugh. Yeah, and then and then later on Instagram, I was like, "Who wants to come over? Put a ring on it." You know what I mean? Just like whatever, making fun of it. Well, I'm trying to make fun of it because it's so horrible. Well, t- let's talk about this. T- All t- right. t- now, w- what happened exactly? I don't fucking know. 
uh, truly, I mean, I'm a writer, which means I'm pretty reclusive. I mean, I go to meetings, I work out from home, I have, you know, friends, whatever, but it's like, I have a cat, he doesn't even have it, Colonel Puffbuff doesn't have it, and one day, I just got this red ring on my arm, and I was like, what the fuck? And I was like, maybe it's psoriasis, or like eczema, and I start Googling, which is like the, of course, like the death, you know what I mean? Then you're like, I'm gonna die! So, you're, you know, and then I was like, Maybe it's ringworm. Why, where did that thought come from? Because I had ringworm 10 years ago from a kitten, and I gave it to five of my fucking friends in the program. Wow. How because did... it's like, it can be like airborne. You don't have to, like, get naked and rub on someone. Like, if you know, I don't know how they all got it. But anyway, my neighbor has had ringworm because she has two dogs. And I said, what does this fucking look like? And she goes, that looks like ringworm. And I'm like, motherfucker. So... I went to urgent care and he was like, yes, that's ringworm. Here's a cream and, you know, cover it with a bandage at night. So you don't give it to your cat. Cause that's my big concern is Colonel Puff Puff because it cost 2,500 fucking dollars to get rid of his ringworm when he had it a year ago. Wow. Yeah. They shave him and they've got to like do a whole, like they've got to cover everything in plastic. It's very Dexter. You know what I mean? God forbid, like the ringworm go, like it, you know, gets contagious to like, like it, it, it's on the the tools and you know whatever. It's gnarly. Twenty five hundred dollars so, to deal with a yeah, long haired cat, over, like over months to like shave him and dip him in lime where he smells like rotten eggs, and it was a nightmare. What you so, dip? You dip him in what? In lime? Lime, lime, yeah. Like lime, like the green fruit that's kind of like lemon. No, L Y M E. What is that? It's some acidy, gross shit that smells like eggs. I don't. I'm not a veterinarian. Why are you asking? Me I don't. I'm questions? sorry. I'm sorry. So back to the story. Back to the story. So anyway, so he tells me to cover it with a bandage. I'm like, all right. So I go and uh, I go to the pharmacy and I like pull up my arm and I say to the pharmacist, "Look, I have fucking ringworm." And she was like, "I got ringworm working at the pharmacy." I'm like, for real. So it's, like, basically everywhere. It's at the market. It's at the gym. It's everywhere. It's, like, it lives on your skin all the time. But if you get stressed out or you have a shitty immune system because, you you know, you're HIV positive or you fucking, you know, are going through chemo. And I'm just stressed out. I'm not HIV positive. I'm not going through chemo. I got it. Are you, saying, are you saying that tiny worms live on our skin all the time? It's not worms. See, this is the thing. It's a horrible name. There are no worms. People are like, is that the one that makes you skinny? No, bitch, that's not the one that makes you skinny. Which is the one that makes you skinny? Tapeworms. Tapeworms make you skinny. So it has nothing to do with worms. That's the worst named fucking skin condition I've ever... If it was called like... If it was called like striation... Or like red ring, <laughs> red ring syndrome. Nobody yeah, would be no disgusted. Yeah, no one would be so freaked out. Yeah. So it's super gross because everyone's like, you know, no, there's no worms. I can't teach it tricks. There's no worms. It's basically like athlete's foot. But you told me the story you told me last night had you at some clinic where you were oh, yeah, quarantined okay, yeah. and discussed. Right, yeah, and- yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm getting there. I'm getting there. So anyway. Two days late. So I tell all my friends I have ringworm, and now no one will fucking come near me because it's considered super contagious. No one will come into my house. No one will hug me. No one will let me in their fucking apartment. Like, I'm friends with all my neighbors. Like, there's a lot of program people in my building. No one will come near me. They're like, we love you, and we love your ringworm. Stay the fuck out of our apartment. I'm like, so I'm starting to feel very isolated and kind of, like, leprosy. You know what I mean? Like, I'm starting to feel really gross. So anyway, two days later, I'm noticing that it's spreading. 
Or like, uh, that's what it looks like. I have a second ring coming up. And I'm like, motherfucker. Where's the rings? Where's the first it's one? There, it's on my forearm. And then underneath where the bandage was, you could see a whole pink rectangle where the bandage was. So I'm like, why? My skin does not like that bandage. And then there's a second ring right next to it. You know, one of my producers is like, is it like the fucking Olympic sign? I'm like, oh, that's hilarious. That's, are they like, are they intersect? Like three of them? I'm like, fuck you. So I think it's spreading and I go to the walk-in clinic where my primary is and there's a lot they treat a lot of homeless people there I have really high insurance yes yes <laughs> welcome to being a writer and like there's tents outside and like there's like shit. homeless people can shower and da 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 and it's like it's I mean that's a great community service you'd you know think it I mean? was that's the great... place to actually contract ringworm actually right so you know it's like so I walk in and I'm like, hi, I'm just here as a walk-in. There's no appointments available. I have ringworm. They immediately take me into a room and quarantine me for four fucking hours. Four hours? And they're like, you're, yeah, they're like, you can't go upstairs. You're not allowed. Like, you, you know, and I was like, wow. So I'm waiting for some doctor to see me. I'm waiting for someone to not show up for their appointment. Sitting there, my phone's dying. No one, like, I'm just like, oh, my God, kill me. Like, hours I'm being quarantined in a place where, like, I can hear, like, homeless people screaming in the shower who are, like, completely psychotic. Like, a guy comes in, and he's, like, super dirty, and I'm like, I don't think you want to be in here, bro. I have ringworm. And he goes, I'm just calling, using the phone to call a church to find out about housing. And I was like, all right, dude. <laughs> and he's like, and he calls the church. He's like, so you guys really stripped? I love that, right? That's so addicts, right? It's like, we don't, we'd rather live on the street with freedom than be in a strict sober living. <laughs> than have a strict, a strict roof over our head. Totally. Right. So finally I see a doctor and he's like, I hear you. He, he like, like shakes my hand. And I'm like, ooh. And I was like, he goes, I hear you have a rash. And I don't, I'm like, bro, I don't have a rash. I have ringworm. And he goes, okay. So he puts a glove on and he looks at it. He goes, yeah, you have ringworm. And I go, what's this other second one? He goes, that's contact dermatitis. You're allergic to that bandage. And I was like, okay. And he goes, you shouldn't ever cover ringworm. I don't know why that doctor told you. Because it creates like a little hothouse. And then it's like creates the, like, like where like it's moisture and the fungus can grow and reproduce. It's like a little house for it. So he just said, I'm going to give you a cream. And I just said... And he touched my arm. Then he took off the glove and he touched my arm with his hand. And I just felt like, oh, my God, human contact. Right. Like, thank you. And I said, I'm itchy everywhere. I don't know if I'm being, like, paranoid or hypochondriac. And he goes, I said, my head itches. And he goes, do you want me to look at your scalp? He's like, and would I you said, like would... me to shampoo your hair? <laughs> I know. I loved him. I was like, I need to marry this person. He's so empathetic. Was and he go, handsome? Yeah. Mm, he was like a very like ruddy linebacker kind of corn fed guy. All right. Not really my type, but I was like, he was so kind. And I said, I swear I don't smoke meth anymore. And he just was like, okay. <laughs> He's like, that's what everybody with ringworm tells me. <laughs> so he looks through my hair with his bare hands. And I was like, I'm in love with you, you know? And he was like, you're good. Your scalp's fine. Like, he's like, it's no big deal. It's not as contagious as people think. It's a reaction to your own flora. Like, people are overreacting. But when I was sitting in that room waiting for him, I never wanted to use so bad in my life. I looked at the cabinets, and I was like, I bet there's syringes here. I want to shoot cocaine. Fuck my life. And it wasn't just the ringworm. It was, like, being celibate for two years and, like, being broke and, like, being depressed. And I was just kind of like, uh. 
And did you, Amy? Wait, wait, wait. Did you really have that thought? In the- I really did. I really did. I looked at the cabinets, and I was like, two are locked, and I bet those where they fucking have the syringes. They're not stupid, right? You know what I mean? Yeah. But I remember once where I was at a vet when I was using, and I saw syringes just like out, and I thought, "You dumb fucks." You right. know what I mean? Like, right. I once stole syringes from a clinic. I did for B twelve shots. I once got a B twelve uh, a. Uh, a uh, prescription for B12 shots and then just threw away the B12 and just used the syringes. I was going to ask you for some reason if you ever had gotten an actual B12 shot. I have. They're awesome. It used to make me really high and manic, but now I guess I have enough B12 that it doesn't do that. It's fun for me. Everyone else is irritated by me, but I have a great time. They're still giving out B12 shots? Is that a thing still? It's LA. Yeah. I've never had a B12 shot. You get it in your ass, your arm, and it's like if you're really depleted, you'll feel really like, woo, you know? Where do you get B12 other than in a B12 shot? Am I a nutritionist? I don't know. Dark I don't, veggies. I, I don't just, fucking know. You can take it. You can take sublingual B12. You can whatever. In the old know. days, in the old days, people would get the B12 shot and get all be all fixed up. You know what I mean? Like, it oh, was a yeah, thing. That was beca- in the old days, it was fucking mixed with fucking amphetamine. Right. Like Kennedy and all that shit. Yeah, yeah those, those were the mixed. good the good B12 yeah, that's, shots. Like, that's my ideal fucking B12 shot. Hello. So you um, so you had this feeling like you you and how often no, do you No, I really did. I was just like I want to use, I want to use, I want to use. I fucked my life, fucked and I was like and I'm 6 years clean, you know, and I'm going to speak in Ohio and I'm just going to speak in Reno and I just thought fuck, I cannot. You know what I mean? Like I'm on this like, you know, people are like I love your book and thank you so much and you're an inspiration. I'm like fuck. You're like, so, I'm shooting amphetamines with B12 and fuck yeah, you. I, it was like, yeah. And I just thought, God, I'm like trapped now by like being known as being in recovery and like, like I can't use. And then my head's like, you can use and not tell anyone, which is so alcoholic and addict. And I was like, oh, that's a great idea, dude. And so anyway, I called my friend, Dr. Howard Wetzman, and he's an addictionologist and a psychiatrist. And he used to own... Townsend Treatment Centers in Louisiana, and he's also sober, and he's amazing. And I've, I've quoted him in a lot of fixed pieces. And I just was like crying, and I was like, I'm so depressed. I fucking ringworm. I really want to use. I'm smoking cigarettes again. Like, what the fuck, you know? What did he say? And he just said, um, well, first of all, he said. You know, he just put a YouTube video up where when you are made to feel less than, it lowers your dopamine. Automatically, it lowers your dopamine tone. When you're shamed or made to feel less than, it lowers your dopamine tone. And as addicts, our brain goes, fuck, low dopamine tone. We need to up the dopamine tone. And it's like, how can we do that? And it doesn't care where it gets it from, like a chocolate eclair or a dick or pussy or heroin or you know what i mean nicotine it's just like we got to get the dopamine right gambling it doesn't matter it's like we got to get the dopamine up your brain is like whoa 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 alert low 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 dopamine and so that's why i was smoking that's why and he goes so don't you feel like being quarantined and being treated like a leper and your friends not come don't you think that even though it's just one red little ring on my forearm like less than the size of a quarter you know and he's like don't you feel like did that make you feel less than I'm like, oh, God, yeah. He right. goes, did that make you feel ashamed? I'm like, totally. I felt disgusting. And then, it, and then it triggered all those thoughts, like me walking through TSA with, like, track marks on my neck and that shame. 
and me relapsing over and over and over again and coming back into AA, like with like having been a secretary and having years and then having relapsed or me on the chain gang sweeping the streets and the fucking crew boss saying your guys are criminals or like people not talking to us because we had like clean team uniforms and we were considered criminals. And it just brought up all this shame. Right. And feeling less than. And he goes, that's why you, you it lowered your dopamine. Right. And he goes, and that's why you wanted to use. And I was like, oh. Well, that makes and sense. I was like, yeah. And he was just like, and that just made me feel like we have to be so careful to not shame addicts. You know what I mean? At all. But let me fl- let me fl- let me flip this on you for a second though, because you're an addict and you are in, you're in recovery and you felt shame, but you didn't use. So what Correct. what what did you do? Like how did you deal with it? I cried. I smoked cigarettes. I called people. I called Wetsman. I called my sponsor. I called my dad, right. and then I wrote a piece about it for the fix. I'm writing a piece about it for the fix. If she'll take it. Which, because I think it's really interesting to see how ringworm triggered my alcoholism. And it's like, you know, it really, really did. It totally. really, I never wanted to use so bad in my life. But, I literally was like, okay, if I, I, I'll fuck it, you know? And but I didn't you didn't. Why. Do you think writing the piece for the fix gave you a little dopamine? Because you like. Absolutely. As right. a writer, absolutely. And it gave me also, like, for me, if I can reframe it and it can help someone or I can make it funny then it doesn't feel as shaming. You know what I mean? And then I talked to you, and you said you had a fucking fungus on your neck, and then I felt like, let's talk about fungi, junky fungi. Well, check it out. Years. I mean, before we get any any further in my own disgusting... Skin condition story. I just want to say, you feel grossed out too. Oh, dude, I'm a disgusting person, though. I have I have lots of issues, but. The thing about your story that I think is the most important is like, yeah, we don't want to shame. No addict should, you know, nobody needs to be shamed. But the trick is, if you're an addict and you get shamed, you don't have to use. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, I self-shamed myself. I was like, I'm so gross, blah, blah. And like the self-hatred that came up and blah, blah. And I was like, yeah, I wanted to use and I have wanted to use in my six years. And I have not. You know what I want to do like every day? It's fucking what? smoke. I want to smoke and well, I want to... Well, I fucking did that for about a week and a half and I'm trying to stop today. Cause it's, but it's so gross. I right. can't even tell you. I get right. the worst headache. Everything smells. It's disgusting. What kind of cigarettes do you smoke? Parliament lights. You know, yeah, that's amazing. Um, it's so disgusting. And now it's raining outside. I'm like, really? I'm going to be one of those fucking losers. It's like, it goes outside in the rain to smoke. I was like, fuck that. You know, and I want to vape again. But I'm just like, no, dude. No. Let me tell you, if you're smoking, get an umbrella and you stand under your umbrella know, and enjoy your cigarette. Bare, I know. It's a, but you know what? I smoke a cigarette in like four drags like a crackhead. No, I'm the no same. One's ever seen me. No. no one's ever seen it. They're like, what the fuck? I don't like sit and enjoy it. I'm looking for the nicotine. I'm looking for the dopamine. I'm not, I don't enjoy smoking. I'm not like, yay. No, that's the line. It's the line. Yeah, but I see other people leisurely smoke and just talk and chat. That's not, I go out there and I fucking just, in like three pops, it's out. Yeah. Takes me 30 seconds to smoke a cigarette. No, I I think you're probably exaggerating. I, I used to smoke in between work. And I would, I would, like, while I was waiting tables, like, I would be in the middle of serving and I would go out and I would smoke. And, um, and I would really condition myself to believe that was my time. You know what I mean? Like, of when course, I went out. Of course. But, like, everybody in my family got so mad and my lungs are bad. Like, I would get bronchitis, like, twice a year. Oh, no. 
And I would wheeze and shit. It was gross. Oh, shit. But, um, but so I'm happy not to smoke, but I do miss smoking. But I also know that if I smoke a cigarette, it's like... There's no one cigarette for me. That was my mistake. Yeah. That was my mistake. Yeah. I fucking bummed a smoke off a sponsee at a meeting. And I just thought, just one. And then, it, you know, a couple of days later, I spummed another one. And then fucking, what do you know? I'm buying a pack. Right. If I, if I smoke a cigarette, I'm buying a pack. There is no yeah, doubt. It's, it's, well, that's, you know, I've done this experiment a zillion times. And I, every time I think, I'm like, it'll be okay. Like the first pack lasted a week. And I was like, that's pretty good. And the second pack lasted two days. Right, exactly. I would smoke. I would. I would get a pack, and the first pack would last like three days. I bet, and then I would get a pack every day. But um, I'm going to tell you. I have two stories to tell. You want to hear my skin condition story? You yeah, wanna... come on. I All was right. like, tell me about your fungus. All right. Well, years. I mean, that's hilarious that we both have a skin fungus. Well, mine is like really kind of sad. If you want to know the truth, <laughs> um, the truth is that years ago, like I want to say, like four years ago, um. I, I brought my daughter back to her mother's house, and me and her mother, like, weren't together uh, from the beach. Or maybe we were just getting back together. We were just getting back together. And, uh, and, and my daughter's mother's named Linda, and Linda's like, she's like, Dave, what's going on with your neck? And she even oh, said, God. she even said, is that ringworm? And I said, oh, no. I said, no. And I look at it, and I have this, like, two-toned skin. Like it's like tanner in one spot and and less tan in another. And if you look at it, it looks like very very not good. So I went I went to the dermatologist and he was like, "You have so and so," and he he told me what to buy. But I'm just so fucking irresponsible. I didn't. I just was like, eh. You know, it didn't itch. It didn't bother me. It just Linda made me feel kind of shamed about it. But I, but I got over it. And then, like the next, I don't know, the next year, I go to my barber, this old Russian guy named Igor, and he goes, "You know, you have terrible rash on your neck." <laughs> and I was just like, I was like, oh yeah, is it still there? And it's still there. I've never done well, of anything about it. You didn't treat it. No. Oh my god. I've got untreated some sort of like. Two-toned fungus on my neck, and you I live put with a that. Cream on it? No, I, just put a cream. What on kind it. of cream? cream? What kind of cream? Well, I'm sure he told you, and it probably gave you an RX. He probably gave you a prescription. Just go get the prescription cream. But mostly, you know, it's like they're all clotrimazole, like like any antifungal cream. Will I did it. it. You know, I got some antifungal, and I started putting it on, and I didn't get the results quickly enough, and I stopped putting it on. But no, you have to be really diligent about it. You've got to do it like two to three times a day till the thing is totally fucking gone. And it's like, you know, yeah, he probably gave you a prescription, which is better than just some like, you know, athlete's foot spray or yeast infection cream or whatever. But it's like, yeah, you know, some... he gave me a different cream and I'm just putting it on. But it's like, you know, it, then it looks much, much better. But, you know, and my friend came over yesterday and brought me bath salts. And he, he had had ringworm, too, from, like, a mess run. You know, like a gay guy. Just Wasn't like bath, was bath salts, was bath salts the thing you could smoke and die from? Yeah, no, he brought me actual bath okay, salts. Okay, okay. Lavender bath salts you take a bath in. Yeah, bath salts, fuck yeah. that. On dopey, and he was you like, know, come on. Yeah, and he came in and hugged me. And I was like, thank you for fucking, you know, thank you. And he was like, oh, my God, girl, like, I don't. You know, I've had it. No big deal. Like, he treated me like a fucking human being. But I just, it was really interesting to me. I think that, like, shame is, like, the worst thing we can do to people, you know, that are using or that relapse. And 
And it just because, and I know in my experience that every time I relapsed and I felt shame or someone shamed me for my use, I relapsed more. I used to get rid of the shame because like now I know it lowered my dopamine and then I wanted to up my dopamine. Right. And there's a lot of shame with being an IV drug user. Right. Right. That's interesting. I mean, like it's, it's so, I don't know what I was going to say. I mean, I, I fucking, um, but like I'm back to wearing long sleeves. I'm like, no, it's like the old days. <laughs> oh, because of the ring where you're wearing. Yeah. Sleeves. I'm like fucking right. I'm like, this is like the old days. How long will it take to go away? I don't know. It looks much better. I mean, fully, they use the cream for two to four weeks, but it's already so, so much better. I think it's weird that I don't, I don't have shame for what I did in the past anymore. Like, I feel like the shame has gone away from me. Like, I just do. Like, I don't tell people where I'm going to feel shame. You know what I mean? Like, actually, you know, I told one of my neighbors about it. Okay. I told one of my neighbors, not about my skin condition, but that I used to shoot dope. (laughs) And, um, and he doesn't talk to me anymore. And I ran into him. Are you serious? Yeah, he's a very conventional guy. And I ran oh, into him. Shit. Dude, I ran into him at, at my daughter's school science fair last night. And I was like, what the fuck, man? Why don't you talk to me anymore? And he didn't wow. say anything about it. But um, it's interesting. Wow. You want to hear something really funny? Yeah. Okay, hold on. I got to get the picture because I don't remember what it said. So my daughter is, you know, she's nine. She's in third grade. And they do a science fair. Uh, for the third, fourth, and fifth grades in her elementary school. Or maybe just the third, fourth, and fifth, I think, is, is the grades. And, uh, and I was pretty unimpressed with the science fair, to be honest with you. But I saw one uh, science fair booth, and you know they all have their headline of what they like want the thing right. to be or whatever. And the one that I liked was gluten-free desserts. Yummy or not? <laughs> and that, that was the science project. And I took a picture of it and I just That's like, hilarious. I wandered. Everyone's like, which one's your favorite? I was like, gluten free desserts, yummy or not? That's I just, really funny. I just loved, I loved that science fair project. I also, <laughs> I had my, my, Linda had her friend come over the other night and he's like a, like a social worker type, whatever. And, uh, and I was talking about smoking because he smoked. And I remember when I, when I, whenever I do something that I really like to do, like smoke or eat cookies or, or get high, I remember I had this phrase that would pop in my head, which is, I could do this all day. You know what I mean? Right. Like if right, it was right, in right. the morning and I was sitting with a friend and I was smoking cigarettes and talking, I wished I could just do that all day. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, or if I was eating cupcakes. Like there was like like there's this kind of cupcake, uh, and they don't make them anymore. But when I was a kid, they made these Entenmann's cupcakes, and I don't know if they have Entenmann's in California, do they? I did a commercial for them years ago. You did, well, yes. And do they have it in California? Was it called Entenmann's? I think it was. I think so. I don't know. I don't eat that shit, dude. So they had these cupcakes that were just. I did a commercial for them. Yeah. Oh my god, how embarrassing. They were so good. They they were like chocolate on the bottom and it had this thick icing on the top that you could remove. And the icing was like very, very rich chocolate. And inside the cupcake was this very rich cream. And I would eat those cupcakes and think to myself, I could do this all day, you know? And it was that same thing. And so I told my, my uh, Linda's friend this story and he said, you probably have naturally very low dopamine levels. No shit, Sherlock. It's like, yeah, that's probably why I became a heroin addict. But of I, course. It, but I just think it's,
I never heard anybody say that to me before. I don't know. It was it was very interesting to me. Well, you know, there's you know, there's also according to, you know, there's a thing. There's a, an enzyme mutation that many addicts have. It's called the motherfucker gene. That's the actual short version of it. It's like a whole long scientific name where we can't get um, L-methylfolate from green vegetables as well as normal people. We cannot which is what creates dopamine and serotonin. And many, many addicts, if they test for it, have a mutation in that gene, in the motherfucker gene. And so they have to, if you take L-methylfolate, it can really help. Where do you get that? Um, there's lots of different brands. I mean, I take something called Enlight D. It doesn't, like, fix it for you. I mean, when I first took it, it was like a come-to-Jesus moment. I felt like, oh, you know really? what I mean? But, now, but then, yeah. And it's like, it can be weird if you take it with SSRIs because then you can have too much serotonin. And if when you create too much serotonin, then it lowers your dopamine. It's like a whole fucking cycle. It's like, I know way too much about this now. So would you but, recommend um, this stuff to, to addicts out there? Yeah, I mean, there's it's, it's, it's a type of B12, like it's a type of B complex. Yeah, because if you don't need it, you'll just piss it out. I think if you're on a lot of medications, especially SSRIs, you should run it by a fucking psychiatrist for sure. I mean... I haven't had to lower my Prozac, but a lot of people have had to lower like their their SSRIs because you know it's too much. It can be a serotonin syndrome. You get too much serotonin, which then lowers your dopamine, and then you're just like fucked. Oh, but yeah. Um, yeah, I wrote an article about it for the fix too, called like uh, low dope. Do you have low dopamine tone? And it's all again Wetzman stuff because I just think he's a fucking genius, and he's just been so kind to me. Like oh. I call him crying, and he's just such a good friend, and he's just. That perfect mix of like program and science and humor and you know not that I don't call my sponsor but my sponsor was like double up in your program I'm like boo you know what I mean like and this guy gives you the science of the issue yeah all right that's he cool was just like but that's the other thing too is like when we come into the rooms you know we feel less shame because we feel we're around other people who like also have been arrested who also have fucking have restraining orders who've also od'd and so there's that sense of camaraderie and community and the shame falls away and that lifts your dopamine that's another reason aa works fellowship gives you dopamine like cool people that you meet friendship gives you dopamine yeah exercise gives you dopamine fucking sex gives you dopamine chocolate probably chocolate probably gives you dopamine probably you know what my big fear is right now and it's like i i'm like this is going to sound stupid, but I'm, like, all of a sudden, like, really convinced that I have fucking diabetes. Why? I don't know, because I fucking, I overindulge on, on sweets at night. I mean, like, You're I'm just bad. Just get your fucking blood sugar tested. I just don't want them to tell me. Like, I don't want to oh hear about God, it. Oh, my God, that's so addicty. It's like, put the bill in the drawer and don't look at it. I know. I have to fucking go. Yeah, but you can, contr- you know, you can get it under control with, with diet. My mom was pre-diabetic or diabetic and she got it under control with fucking diet but what kind of life is that where you shoot insulin like what you want to have fucking needles i don't eat sugar i don't even crave sugar i know but i do i have a real problem with it (laughs) i have a serious problem with it you're probably like addicted to sugar then check it out last night my dad came over and he he was like he he's always supposed to come at five for dinner and he leaves his house at like one and I'm like, Dad, don't come early. You know, because he always he just comes too early. And I, and it's like he's God. like he's like, Don't don't worry, I've got this and that to do. So he calls me at, at three o'clock 
And he goes like, he's like, I'm at Costco. Do you oh, need God. anything? And I'm like, yeah, get get some Diet Coke. So he gets, he, he's like, okay, do you want anything else? And I'm like, no. And he comes over and he brings like 36 cans of Diet Coke. But then, but then he brings this fucking box of chocolate chip cookies. Okay. It's like 50 huge, delicious chocolate chip cookies. And I have a real problem with these cookies. Um, I don't know. Maybe you need to go to OA now. It's possible. It's possible. What's going on? Are you fat, Dave? I'm not that fat, but I'm not that skinny either. Um, <laughs> I'm a little bit fat. I'm a little fatter than I'd like to be. But let me continue. So fucking, and my dad's telling me he is on some fucking fitness kick and he's bringing me oh, 50 cookies. I'm like, what are oh, you doing? God. And then I'm like, I'm not going to eat the cookies. My daughter has a cookie. Linda, Linda has a cookie. They go to bed. Then I got on the phone with you. And then I got after the, I got off the phone with you. I was like, you know, I think I'm gonna have a couple cookies. And I went downstairs. I had five cookies. Okay. <laughs> and and in the morning, in the morning, Linda looks at me, looks at the box of cookies. She looks at she looks at Nora. And she goes, "How many cookies did you have?" And she figures out that I had five cookies. And she opens up the box of box of cookies, and uh, she takes dishwashing detergent and she covers the cookies in dishwashing disorder. She covers the cookies and she's like, because yeah. if I throw it in the garbage, you're probably going to eat it out, yeah, it out of the garbage. Disorder. That's eating disorder shit. Did you ever have an eating disorder? That's what I used to do. I don't know. That's a good yeah, question. Yeah, that's eating disorder shit because you'll get it out of the trash. But if you put dishwashing detergent over it, you won't fucking eat it. Can I tell you the like truth, shit. though? I don't think I would take it out of the garbage. I think she would. I think that's why she did it. <laughs> but I have an issue and I need what I what I haven't done yet is I haven't 12-stepped my eating. I 12-stepped my smoking, and I obviously 12-stepped drugs. But I have right. not, like, made a decision to turn my will over to the care of higher power to get me out of this thing, you know? Right. And the second I decide to pray to not eat sweets, I think I could get over this thing. I just really like them. I see it as this big reward for the end of the day. It's a problem, though. It's a problem. It's an issue. I get it. I get it. I mean, I'm not really, I mean, for me, like, nicotine is the big one right now. Yeah, I don't know how, like. Like, I opened that fucking Pandora's box back up, and now I'm like, well, now I want to vape again, and blow, and I'm like, oh, God. You know what I mean? Like, today is day one, and I'm like, don't do it. And it's like, let's see how long I last. You know what I mean? It's just like, it's a night, I mean, I love nicotine. Love it. Yeah, I do, too. Um, I, do like, too. I don't even drink coffee anymore because people are like, don't be around me when you drink coffee. You're so annoying and hyper. I'm so like, you're off caffeine, but you're but you're back on nicotine. I'm on yerba mate, which is like a caffeinated tea, but it's more mild. It's not like it's coffee, which can really throw you up and then you crash back down. I mean, there's a meme going around. I don't know if you see it on Instagram. And it's like, that obviously just fuck me up is not an actual order at Starbucks, which is such an addict thing, right? <laughs> just yeah. fuck me up. I don't. I don't get affected by uh by caffeine. You know, oh my I, god! Oh my god! I get so affected. I think I'm just naturally up. I think um. Let's do an email. Which one yeah, do you want to do? do, do you read? I gave you those emails. Pick one and read it, if you don't mind. Um. You want to do the young one? Yes. Do that one first. Okay. So do we say who it's from? No. Just say first name. Uh, okay. So. Uh, dear Dave, uh, I'm a ninth grader in high school. And ninth grader. Ninth grader. Right, which okay. is fucking young. So yeah. you're what? Like, how old is that? Like 14? I Jesus. Think? 15? 14. 14. 
And in the past six months or so, my closest couple friends have all started popping pills. It started with Oxy and then turned into taking many perks at once. They pop pills during the week and weekend and seem to be going downhill. I sent this email because I was curious where it all started for you and any advice you would have for them because I feel they're going down the path to becoming dope fiends as adults. Sincerely, Alvin. Yeah, that's crazy. It's crazy to me to think about young young kids listening me to the too. show. Me too. You know, I, I, I don't picture that. Um, I mean, for me, I started smoking weed at the end of high school, and I didn't start doing heroin until uh, the middle of college, and I didn't become addicted to heroin until a few years after. I, I was not a candidate. I didn't seem to be a candidate to become a drug addict when I was 14, even though probably inside I was total textbook drug addict. You know, what about you? It's exactly the same. I didn't, uh, I was actually super anti-drug. I was super purist. Um, I didn't drink till I was 19. I didn't smoke pot till I was 21. And I didn't start doing crystal till I was 24. And within, you know, then I was just hooked. It was, it was on. But like you said, I was exactly textbook. Like, I felt different. I felt less than, you know, I got like a weird eating disorder first and da 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 da. And it's like, it's all, you know, it was like I had all that stuff yeah, set up. Totally. Me too. But yeah, I didn't, I can't imagine, you know. So what do you like, advise? What do you advise, Alvin? God. Well, I mean, you know, a lot of people, you're, first of all, you're not going to tell them, like, don't do that and they're going to stop doing it. Number one, you know, we're, we're very reactive people. So if you tell us not to do something, we're going to do it. We're going to be like, fuck you, you know, and we're going to do it. Number two, it's like, I mean, it is concerning. Um, I do think that, that some people go through experimental phases when they're young and, and put it down. Yeah. So, um, I don't think that everyone who uses drugs becomes a drug addict. Like I know people who do coke on the weekends or do coke once a month and have a bag and they're like like that was never me as soon as i picked up it was on yeah me too and you know and that was it and it's like um but a lot of people have an experimental phase when they're young and they put it down and they grow out of it you know that's why i'm always like a little bit has like when people are like get sober at like 15 or 16 it's like are you sure Right, because there's a lot of there's a lot of yeah. safe experimentation at that point, possibly. Yeah, and I mean this is concerning, but I mean it's like you just you know it's like I don't know that there's any intervention that you can do. You know, when you're not going to scare them straight, they're gonna. You know what I mean? It's like I don't know. I, what do you think? I mean, I don't think there's anything. There's a way to take a budding drug addict if they are that. And get the and and get them to stop until they've you know really hit something. All I think is like it's like what what somebody would say in twelve step, which is like it's none of your business what they do. You, you do you do your own thing, Alvin. If you yeah. if you like getting high, you know you might have a very very hard road in front of you, and you might not. I like I, I don't want to hear about. I mean, I don't want my daughter to I don't enjoy. Think he's doing it exactly. His friends are doing it, so he's probably gonna have Alvin's probably gonna have to find new friends. He just probably will. Or become a terrible drug addict with these junkie friends of his. Or go to Al-Anon at fucking ninth grade. He'll be the youngest, the youngest <laughs> Al-Anon. Do they say Al-Anonian? He'll be the youngest uh, Al-Anonian no ever. But I appreciate the email, Alvin. And I, if you're young and young and young and listening to Dopey, write a, write a, send in an email. I love to hear about that stuff. It's very interesting mm-hmm. to me. Um, 
Now, it doesn't end well, guys. I will tell you that. No, it's Here, terrible. It's six, yeah, it, it, it escalates and escalates and escalates and it ruins your life and it's so not worth it. And that's all I have to say. Like 20 years of my life was spent yeah. like, being a drug addict yeah. and going in and out of rehabs and psych wards and jails and it sucks. Well, that's why, like, the fact that you didn't use when you felt like using, it would all get fucking toppled. You know what I mean? Like, like. Well, that's the old thing. I mean, my sponsor was like, there's nothing when things are good that getting high is going to make better. And there's nothing when things are bad that getting high is not going to make worse. Right, right. And it was like, I know that. But it's like my brain is still like, hey, I want uh, that's what we want. And I'm like, OK, that's great. You know, also the thing was I wanted to contact my ex-boyfriend, like all of these places. I was looking for some kind of relief. I was looking for some kind of dopamine. I was looking for something. And I I did none of that. I smoked, but I mean, that was it. You know, and I drank a Mountain Dew, which was like what I used to do when I was a tweaker, drink Mountain Dew. Because it has the highest caffeine of all sodas. Right. Except Jolt. Did you guys have Jolt out there? No. See, I'm scared to drink that shit because I have a seizure disorder. And if I drink too much caffeine, I used to drink Monsters and I gave myself a seizure. I can't now. I have epilepsy from Crystal, so I, I, I got to be really careful. Right. Now, are you ready to play the dopey game show? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The Stash Word. Are you ready? What's this? The stash word? The stash word is this. I am going to uh, put a minute on the board, and then, like $25,000 pyramid, I am going to describe something or ask you something, and you are going to answer, and we are going to see how many of the stash word answers that you can get right in one minute. What are the stash word answers? I don't understand. This is I'm confused. I'm gonna give you a question. This is baptism by fire. You didn't, you didn't fucking tell me about this, bitch. I know. What? I figured you'd like this. I'm okay, gonna. I don't like surprises. Okay, go. Did you ever? Did you ever watch the password on TV or the twenty five thousand no, dollar pyramid? No. 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 All right. No. I'm gonna describe something, and you're yeah. gonna tell me what I'm describing. Okay. Okay. And we're gonna, dude. You can't win anything or lose anything, so there's really not many stakes. I want money from you. Well, there's no money. <laughs> I, I could send you a pastrami sandwich in the mail. I want cookies. What kind? Of, okay. If you, well, okay. If if you win, you will get a cookie. All right. Okay. Here we All go. Right. Question number one: A plunger and a barrel are parts of what? You only have a minute. A plunger and a barrel are, and these are all having to do with drugs. You can say pass oh. if you want. You oh, can, thanks for telling me that now. Yeah, just, oh, IV drug use. Well, sure. We'll say a syringe. An, out, yeah. an outdated measurement for weed, also referring to the top of a jar. Lit. Yes. But for the blank of God, go I. Grace. Yes. The name for a crack whore that exchanges sex for crack. Crack whore. Well, say pass. <laughs> Wait, hold on. You're going to run out of time. Okay, pass. So, this is my friend Sam wrote these. They're very hard. Here. Sometimes still called dysmorphobia, the mental illness cripples individuals into thinking that some part of their body. Body dysmorphia. Yes. I have it. I have it. In a normal functioning central nervous system, this transmits moods and regulates blood flow. Ah, we're out of time. The neurotransmitters. That was dopamine. But he did all right. That's bull. That's not no. I think you. I think you might have beaten Anna David. 
I think what's she got the crab, three. What's the Cragmore one? A strawberry? I never even heard of that before. Oh, yeah. Fuck. Okay, yeah. You want to hear the other ones that you didn't get to do? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, see, the stash word is fun, right? Yeah, it is fun. Yeah. Uh, but it would be helpful if you told me everything had to do with drugs at the very beginning. I just figured you'd know. It's a stash <laughs> word on dopey. I was, like, I was like, you were said plunger, and I was like, plumbing. Toilet, plumbing. I was like, yeah, I was like. <laughs> well, you did okay. You want, you want. Right, what are the. The rest right, of the I'm questions. Get better next time. What else? Uh, what is one predatory drug that is used to incapacitate a victim? Oh, roofies. Sure. The Beatles song "Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds" is said to refer to what drug? LSD. Yeah. Uh, don't worry. I want to save these. We'll save these questions for another this time. This is fine. Oh yeah, it's great. It's great. Stashware is great. Um, now what we're we gonna do before we left? Oh, we got a we're voicemail. Do a voicemail. Yeah. Here we go. Let me play the voicemail. Hold on. Hey Dave, how's it going? Hey Dopey Nation, I'm on the way, way home from work, figure I'd send you a quick voicemail, I'll tell you a quick story. Uh, back in the day, had a 250 milligram plus Roxy habit a day, and like any other fiend, I would go to extreme lengths to get the things. And I've always had good jobs during my habits, but this one in particular, I uh, had a boss who dealt in guns all the time. He had pistols and rifles and shotguns. Well, I remember him calling me uh, earlier on that week saying, hey, I got this pistol. I'll get, I'll get it to you real cheap. You can resell it or whatever and make yourself some money. I said, all right, cool. Went over there, and he said, oh, there's one problem. You know, this, this thing don't have a serial number. He said, so you're going to want to keep it on the down low and just be careful with it, basically. Actually, I didn't think he gave a fuck. I don't think he told me to be careful, but anyway. So, I remember texting my one of my dealers, and I'm like, hey, man, I, I'm short on funds right now. Can I uh, can I get you a pistol? And you give me, say, like four Roxies. I think I made a deal for like four or five Roxies. Like, oh, you know, I'll think about it. Let me get back to you. He says, yeah, come through, bring a pistol, I'll check it out, you know. So I go over, knock on the door, he brings me in, leads me into his garage where he's going to check out this pistol. And I fucking see these these three guys with pop cans turned over and the bottoms cut out and they're fucking cooking cooking up their, their rocks. He's getting ready to shoot up. I remember thinking to myself then, I'm thinking, man, fucking, I'm in, I'm in here with these needle junkies and fuck, I need to get my shit and get out of here, I need to get rid of this pistol, and I'm, I'm like, judging the fuck out of these people, like, oh, what am I doing here, you know, gotta get my shit and go, and then fucking later on, I'm thinking, I get my shit, and I'm thinking, I'm fucking judging these assholes for being needle junkies, and here I am trading a fucking scratch cereal pistol for five Roxies, funny how the world turns, anyways, just a quick little dopey story. Uh, you guys, everybody keep it real and toodles. That is a longtime dopey fan, listener, and Twitter contributor, Kevin Kuntz. I hope I'm saying his name right. I always want to say Kevin Kuntz. But thank you for the voicemail. Right, Amy? Thanks, good. Kevin. That's right. It's a good voicemail. Um, before we go, before we go, I just want to read some, some, some new dopey reviews that I really like. Woo! Um... This one, I just have to read it. 
It's uh, it's called Ibogaine by Pandersoge, and it says I have been I've been binging dopey in reverse since querying heroin in This American Life. By the way, there exists a couple of other good dope-related This American Life episodes for anyone interested. Dave has a rare natural ability to connect with people on a deep level indiscriminately. I think he's just getting comfortable with his newfound talent. Nice, leading him to endlessly coax reassurance from his guests. Did you feel reassured? Absolutely. Good. Confirming he's doing a great job. I'm jealous of his extroversion and ability to maintain friendships in a family. These connections are rare in recovery, and loneliness is one of the many hallmarks of it. I believe this is the cornerstone in his stable abstinence. Dave's honesty is honorable. I connect more to Chris, being a privileged wasp that likes to tinker with his brain chemistry and is fascinated by the science of drugs. I'm currently smoking a gram of dope a day, have been off and on for about a year, and have some fire coke tonight, which is unusual, but welcome as I have to stay up all night due to my sleeping till four today. Have to get back on schedule, right? I've never shot dope and don't plan to, but reluctantly assisted my ex in puncturing her tiny veins many times. Before the dope that I never thought I'd become addicted to, I was a self-medicated drunk, uh, an Adderall addict. Anyway, I procured iboga root off the dark net. This is my second order, and it is fantastic. I highly recommend you get an iboga expert ex-junkie on the show. Your episodes that touched on it were funny, but the subject deserves more attention. Thanks, and keep it up, Dave. I love it. Crazy review, though. Interesting. Well, usually ibogaine, I mean, people take ibogaine to kick heroin. Right, it's a, I, I've taken it. it as like a drug to like just like enjoy. Well, it's a it's a crazy trip. I've taken it. Don't I didn't, you throw it up and like hallucinate and shit? Yeah, you do all those yeah, things. Yeah, no, I. Ugh, ugh. But the the really strange thing is that that was a review. <laughs> it's so funny. Like how how many other podcasts do you think have reviews where they're talking about shooting up their girlfriend with tiny veins and how? I know that was like puncturing her tiny veins. I was like, wow, that's pretty good writing. Wow. I was like, that's pretty good. That was created a visual. All right, so we need an ibogaine expert. Yeah, a buddy of mine just took ibogaine just for depression. Um, and oh, I, interesting. And I took ibogaine, and I did not. Um, you know, it was. I don't think I took the right dosage, but um, it was well, crazy. Well, now they're microdosing MDMA for depression and also doing ketamine for depression. That's the new stuff. Well, the I newest don't... and new. But um, yeah. but thank you, Amy, for coming on. It was a joy oh to God, have you. Sure. Yeah, it was a blast. And um, we say, uh, stay strong, dopey nation, and fucking toodles for Chris. Stay strong, dopey nation. Yes, and um, and if toodles. you guys, and if you guys are fucked. You know, look somebody up and ask for help because everybody yeah. who's in recovery would love to help you out. Absolutely. All right. Thanks, Amy. All right. Bye. Bye. It's awesome to have Amy on the show, but I forgot to thank my buddy, Br'er Brian, for um, for that dopey song in the front. And uh, if you guys want to hear more of uh, Br'er Brian's material, he used to play in a band with me back in the day, you can go to Br'er, B-R-E-R dot bandcamp dot com. He says his his uh, his greatest thing, his homemade masterpiece, is Rose and Chubby by Rose and Chubby, Chubby, C H U B B Y, and it's at Brer B R E R dot Bandcamp dot com, and I love that dopey song. So um, check out Brer's stuff. 
And if you guys have a hankering to do a dopey song, send it to dopeypodcast at gmail.com. Send in a voicemail, send in an email, send in some dopey art. Uh, we love, I love your contributions. Thank you again to Amy Dresner and to Darren Prince for coming on the show. I'm going to close with uh, another Br'er Brian song that we recorded years ago. It's called uh, Train Dispatcher. We recorded it with our buddy John, who I've known forever. And he uh, sent in a bunch of amazing songs to Dopey, including Methadone, Titty Meat, and the classic Dopey Jam, Acrimonious. Here is Train Dispatcher. One, two, How are we starting this? One, two,